Hello and welcome to this podcast on the history of colonization. My name is Fidelity and this is episode 3 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking about Columbus and his encounters with the New World. At the time of this recording, there's been lots of news about the Black Lives Matter movement in the US, which has spread globally, protesting against systemic racism that has gone unaddressed for too long. At the same time, as a result of these protests, interestingly, statues are also being torn down. In the US, there are statues of Confederate generals, slave traders, and colonial figures removed. But also elsewhere, for example, Cecil Rhodes in Oxford, Winston Churchill, and King Leopold II of Belgium. But of course, in this episode, we're going to focus on Christopher Columbus. One statue has lost its head in Boston, another has been set on fire and thrown into a lake, while others have been toppled, and some others have been vandalized. Now, this is a podcast centered around history, and speaking of these current issues might be somewhat anachronistic. But in this case, the history of colonization has very real impacts on the present, what's happening in the here and now. And perhaps this episode might help you understand part of the reason why these statues are being torn down. There are so many myths surrounding Christopher Columbus, and he's so ingrained in American and European history to some extent that it becomes difficult to separate the man himself from our impressions of him that are constantly changing over the years. A Reuters article on the 18th of June 2020 describes the Spanish education minister defending the preservation of Columbus's statue in Barcelona. And in the article itself, it claims that Columbus was the first European to reach the Americas. This isn't true. Columbus was not the first European to visit the Americas. There is clear archaeological evidence that the Vikings made voyages and settled on the coast of modern-day Canada in the year 1000. And yet, there are many who still think this way, with Columbus being labelled the discoverer of the New World, in part due to misleading truths in the education system. Now in this episode, I'm going to present a more nuanced perspective. I don't claim to be able to speak of a complete historical truth, there is no absolute truth in history, but there is so much about the story of Columbus and his voyages that have been erased from textbooks around the world. Much has already been said about Columbus, focusing on his life and voyages. But I want to tell the story in a way that isn't centered around Columbus. This is a story of a sailor, in a certain set of historical circumstances and conditions, encountering a portion of a population on a continent, and this very meeting would be the start of the destruction and devastation of one continent's inhabitants, and the beginnings of Europeans gaining power and dominion over much of the world. Now, I'll start with an introduction to the history of the people that Columbus encountered in 1492. Columbus sailed to the Caribbean on his voyages, which includes the San Salvador Island, not to be confused with the capital of El Salvador, on his first voyage, Hispaniola, the island containing Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and also Cuba. It is difficult to summarize a collective history of the indigenous people up until the point of European colonization because there was so much variation in cultures and religions across different, different regions, even on the same island itself. There was no monolithic culture. For instance, not all Taino people shared the same cultural practices or social formations. 
In addition, it is also hard to obtain information because there are almost no written records dating from pre-colonial times. And it is only with archaeological findings that historians are starting to discover the history of the region, thus avoiding the over-reliance on European written sources for descriptions of the indigenous people. There is also a wide variation in estimations of the population at the time, ranging from 60,000 to 14 million inhabitants on Hispaniola. But this is still widely debated by scholars. European sources of the time claim that there were around 1 million inhabitants on the continent. The people who Columbus first encountered were the Tainos people, T-A-I-N-O-S, who occupied the Greater Antilles, the larger islands of the Caribbean Sea, Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and the Cayman Islands. Columbus wrote of two groups of people he met, the Arawak and the Carib people. The Dinos were the descendants of the Arawakan Indians who had migrated to the islands from the coast of South America thousands of years ago. From archaeological findings, we know that they lived in large villages, some with up to 3,000 people, with houses surrounding central plazas. Here I quote from the Caribbean Before Columbus, a 2017 book written by William Keegan and Corinne Hoffman. Quote, The houses reportedly were large, circular constructions of pole and thatch with high-pitched roofs, although there also were octagonal and rectangular structures. Farmers cultivated house gardens, in which they planted as many as 80 different herbs, spices, medicinal plants, and many other crops that were used in small quantities. Unquote. There were also large fields further from the village, where sweet potatoes, maize, and fruit trees were grown. The village also mostly relied on fishing for animal protein, and apparently sometimes guinea pigs and iguanas for meat too. These villages were ruled by village headmen, and there were regional chiefs for groups of villages, and these groups were in turn ruled by paramount chiefs. The chiefdom was inherited by a matrilineal lineage, thus although the chief were men, his mother and sisters would enjoy social prestige. Ancestors were also venerated in the local religion. At the time of Columbus's arrival, there were two chiefs, or known as Tetiques in Spanish, who ruled over most of Hispaniola. There were also shamans who enjoyed high prestige too, and they were responsible for communicating with spirits or religious ceremonies. The Tainos were seen to be relatively peaceful compared to the Caribs would be characterized as frequent and violent invaders, and this would be very important in justifying Spanish colonization. The Caribs, who were indigenous to the Lesser Antilles, which are small islands to the east of the Greater Antilles, were mistaken as cannibals by Columbus, and there is no evidence that this was true. While the Carib chiefs of important villages accumulated power through war victories and expeditions, they were engaging with tribes on the coast of South America not with the Dinos. And these enemy tribes that they were engaging with were the ones who were cannibalistic, not the Caribs themselves. But the Caribs' eventual resistance towards the Spanish, compared to the peaceful attitudes of the Dinos, would result in forced mass conversion and slavery in order to civilize these supposed cannibals. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, Christopher Columbus was born in 1451, in Genoa, Italy. Columbus's birth origins have been disputed. Some say he was born in Spain or Portugal, but for the most part, scholars generally agree that he was Genoese. 
Columbus was born to a father who was a wool merchant. He first manufactured wool and then went into the exportation business. In this environment where Italian sons were expected to follow their father into the family business, Columbus was educated in mathematics, Latin, navigation, and accounting, which would eventually help in his maritime voyages. He partook in the family business from a young age, and he was an experienced trader by the age of 20. Genoese merchants were remarkably well-traveled for their time, and they sailed wherever European trading routes were established by sea. There were trading posts in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, in Alexandra, in Egypt, London, Paris, Beirut, and so on. So a young Columbus would have been very well-traveled by the time he reached adulthood. Columbus was married in 1479 and gained Portuguese citizenship, which turned out to be very helpful for his business. Since Portugal had limited trading in its overseas islands and possessions to Portuguese citizens, Columbus was finally able to access these trading routes, which were very lucrative, since these included the Western African coast, which was pretty much almost exclusive to Portugal at the time, if you remember the Treaty of Alcasovas in 1480. Between these trade routes in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, Columbus noticed from his West African expeditions that the winds were northeastern, which would facilitate journeys westwards, which would be very helpful for his voyages eventually. Now, the importance of geography during the time in the region cannot be understated. The reason why the islands, the Canary Islands, the Cape Verde Islands, I've mentioned in the past episodes, was so important is partially because of the currents. The currents in the region flow anti-clockwise, so ships from the West African coast would be directed towards the islands and then back to Europe, because the islands were very important for the Spanish and Portuguese at the time. Besides these geographical observations, Columbus dreamt of going westwards to Asia. And of course, he was influenced by who else other than Marco Polo. He believed that a direct voyage west across the Atlantic would bring him to China and Japan, although he underestimated the distance required and an entire continent in the way, of course. But in those times, even though Columbus was doing relatively well as a merchant, he would never have the finances or manpower needed to sail across the Atlantic. For that, he needed sponsors, and where better place to go than the royal court? In 1484, Columbus approached the king of Portugal, John II, interestingly named John the Perfect, to request for sponsorship. Columbus was 31 years old at the time, and it was recorded in Chronicles at the time that he had proposed that, quote, he would discover great islands and terra firma, all very prosperous, rich in gold and silver, pearls and precious stones, and an infinite number of people, unquote. Now remember that Columbus was only a merchant at the time, and he had such outrageous demands that the king had to turn him down. He demanded to become a part of nobility, which would entitle him to hereditary titles for his descendants, and to gain the title of the Grand Admiral of the Ocean Sea. And also, he wanted to become the governor of all lands which he discovered, and wanted to claim a tenth of all the income from all the trades conducted on these lands. But besides how lofty these demands were, Columbus was also rejected because he was unable to give the court a proper scientific calculation of the distance to his proposed destination of Japan. King John II was also keen on avoiding financing private discovery missions, 
because he didn't want to dip into national reserves for missions that would catapult a private individual to riches instead of the monarchy. But interestingly, if John II had accepted Columbus's proposal, he would have set out from the Azores Islands, a Portuguese possession, instead of the Spanish Canary Islands, and he would have been held back by westerly winds, which means that he would might not have been able to go to the Americas. Columbus was even more convinced of the viability of sailing west to Asia when he started to learn about measurements made from explorers and scientists that Africa was possibly as wide as its length. Thus, the shortest route to Asia would definitely be the other way west, since he could avoid the long trek across Africa and the Indian Ocean. So Columbus, undefeated by the Portuguese rejection, went to the Spanish monarchs instead, and asked for sponsorship again in 1487. The proposal was considered and delayed for a number of years because Spain was engaged in a war at the time. But by 1492, the king and queen were finally convinced, mostly because of economic reasons. The Spanish monarchs needed more money to finance any future weddings, which was important for the consolidation of power and to make alliances. And they also needed to make payments to the supposed ruler of the new territory of Grenada. The Spanish monarchs agreed to the voyage, for they saw it as a small investment which could potentially result in large returns. Using the lands and money that they had confiscated from Jews who refused to convert to Christianity and were thus expelled from Spain, they were able to sponsor Columbus on his journeys. While Columbus now had the funding needed for his journeys, he had trouble finding even a single sailor to join his crew at first. Arriving in the port of Palos, he waited several days with no sign-ups despite the lofty amounts of gold he had offered, and Queen Isabella attempted to help by issuing a royal pardon for any criminals who were willing to sign up. Even then, evidently, even the convicts thought he was insane. Only four convicts signed up, and when one imagines how harsh conditions were in prisons during the time, it's evident that, well, convicts thought that the journey meant certain death. It was only with the support and sponsorship from several prominent businessmen in town that Columbus gained the reputation he needed to recruit crewmen. Now we'll take a short break, and after the break, I'll cover the voyages and what happens when the Tainos people meets Columbus and his crew from 1492 onwards. So in the second part of this episode, I'll be talking about Columbus's four voyages, but I'll also be focusing on some key points from his attitudes towards the natives, the conquered lands, and the colonized. So first I'll introduce a brief timeline of the four voyages for context. Having obtained the funding and manpower needed, Columbus prepared and set off on his first voyage on August 3rd, 1492. He eventually reaches the Canary Islands to restock and sails on a month later. And he spends 33 days at sea on his way to the Bahamas. He brought 87 men on board three ships and even brought an Arabic translator along since he was certain that he would reach the east coast of Asia. And the Arabic translator would be able to communicate with those in China due to existing trade routes at the time between China 
and the Arab world. Columbus would believe that he had reached Asia up until his death. All we know of his journey is mainly sourced from his diary, which was transcribed by Bartolome de las Casas, who is a very interesting figure that I might cover in future episodes, in his book The History of the Indies. On October 12th, Columbus and his crew eventually reached Guanahani, which is renamed by Columbus as the island of San Salvador, and he would also encounter the Taino people, indigenous to the island. Columbus would engage in trade, exchanging red caps and glass beads, which were religious items, for their parrots, cotton threads, and darts. He would name the Taino people Indians, believing that he had somehow reached the coast of India. Columbus then visited further islands southwest, such as Cuba and Hispaniola, and he would establish a settlement called La Navidad on modern-day Haiti to accumulate gold which the indigenous people had claimed were nearby, leaving more than 30 of his men behind. This settlement was built out of the remains of a shipwreck from one of the three Spanish ships that Columbus had brought. Columbus would return to Spain in March the next year, but he was briefly stranded on Portugal for a while, which would ensue in the King of Portugal finding out about his journeys, and thus beginning the dispute between Portugal and Spain, which resulted in the Treaty of Tordesillas, which I mentioned in the last episode, the one that split the world in two. When he did eventually make his way to Spain, he brought back ten natives, exotic animals and plants, and most importantly, gold, in the form of gold nuggets, masks, jewellery, and powder impressing the court and its peoples, thus officially earning the titles he asked for in the Spanish court. Columbus's second voyage was in September 1493. Columbus brought back 1,500 men and 17 ships in an effort to establish proper settlements and Spanish colonies. He reached La Navidad in November, and he would find that the previous settlement that he established was burnt down, which was destroyed by internal strife amongst the settlers and conflict with natives. He then went on to establish a new colony named La Isabella further east. He explored Cuba and Jamaica briefly before returning back to La Isabella and became the governor, spending most of his time in the Caribbean attempting to bring peace to the existing conflict between the Spanish and the Tainos. In the colony, he attempted to collect gold from the natives through a tribute system and also kidnapped 1,500 natives to be slaves. After one and a half years, he would return back to Spain again, leaving his brother in charge of the colony, while handpicking 500 of the 1,500 slaves for shipping back to Spain, and 200 would die en route. Columbus's failure to accumulate enough gold from the indigenous people due to warfare and the Spanish moral outrage against kidnappings would reduce his reputation in the Spanish court. Almost two years later, in 1498, Columbus embarks on his third voyage. He reaches Trinidad and then returns to La Isabella, which was renamed Santo Domingo at the time, and he, began, he became governor again. Santo Domingo remains the present-day capital of the Dominican Republic and remains the oldest settlement of a Spanish colony in the New World. Columbus would enslave natives to work in gold mines, and he would also deal in sex slavery. In a letter dating back to the year 1500, he compared the price of a female sex slave to a piece of farmland. 
Columbus came back to Chios in the settlement, and eventually the settlers of Santo Domingo became unhappy enough with his administration to complain to the Spanish court, who sent a new governor to replace Columbus, thus arresting Columbus and his brothers and shipping them back home in chains two years later in 1500. On Columbus's final voyage, he managed to convince the Spanish monarchs to send him to the Americas again, returning in 1502 to search for a way to India through the West Caribbean. But upon failing to find the supposed Straits of Malacca, which he thought was in the Americas at the time, he then tried to establish another settlement to obtain more gold. But this failed, because the settlement was attacked by natives, and he was then marooned in Jamaica before being rescued. He would return to Spain disgraced, and die a few years later after falling out of favour with the court. So I want to turn to his diaries now, where I think representations of those colonised are important in understanding the start of European attitudes towards American colonisation, which would shape the continent and the devastation brought on its inhabitants for centuries to come. His journal entries, especially from his first voyage, are very telling. Upon reaching Guanahani, Columbus described the Taino people as being a race of people very poor in everything, which he judges by their nakedness and lack of familiarity with swords. He also wrote that he wanted to form great friendship, before going on to say that, quote, On my arrival at that sea, I had taken some Indians by force from the first island that I came to, in order that they might learn our language and communicate to us what they knew respecting the country, which plan succeeded excellently and was a great advantage to us, for in a short time, either by gestures and signs or by words, we were unable to understand each other. Unquote. While most friendships, I would say it's relatively uncommon to kidnap well, potential friends and transport them across the Atlantic Ocean, so I would argue that they were seen as exotic goods rather than friends or even human beings. Further objectification of the natives can be seen um, in his description of an escape attempt by one of the Tainos, where he describes them as having fled like foals, like birds. Now, the objectification of the colonized would continue for centuries. And now I'm thinking of the eventual human zoos in colonial Belgium. Besides being entitled to the inhabitants of the lands he had sailed to, Columbus was also intent on possessing all the land that he came across, in what might be described as simple greed. Quote, My desire was not to pass any island without taking possession, so that one, having been taken, the same may be said of all. Unquote. Another factor to note is that Columbus set out on his voyages as a merchant, intent on economic conquests and exploitation, but at some point he quickly realised that it was easier to justify what he was doing to the Spanish court by framing colonisation in a religious way, which was well received after the long war fought against the Muslim Moors in Spain. Here I quote from a letter written to the Spanish monarchs, quote, Your Highnesses should resolve to make them Christians, referring to the indigenous people, for I believe that if the work was begun, in a little time a multitude of nations would be converted to our faith, with the acquisition of great lordships, peoples, and riches for Spain. Unquote. This quote is very telling, 
It marks the start of using religious conversion as an excuse to exploit people and resources for conquered lands. By describing the natives as, quote, beasts to the Spanish monarchs, Columbus was able to convince them that there were thousands upon thousands of natives who could be converted to Christianity, their lands exploited and conquered, thus earning him more funding for further expeditions. Now, if we look at the encounters um, from the natives' point of view, it can be kind of difficult to guess what they thought of Columbus when he first came on shore. We don't have any written accounts from the people that Columbus encountered. We know that some were friendly enough to welcome the Spanish and trade with them. Some others would attempt to escape after being kidnapped, and others would resist their arrival and be labelled as agitators, like the Caribs who were mistaken as cannibals. But interestingly, a group of indigenous people would mistake the Spanish to be divine beings, especially so in um, his first voyage. Quoting from his journal, They looked upon any little thing that I gave them as a wonder, and they held our arrival to be a great marvel, believing that we came from heaven. I think often, especially due to Columbus's narrative, natives can be seen as being naive and overly trusting, thus perhaps contributing to their eventual colonization. But I have mentioned the diversity of people found in the Americas. And in addition to the diversity that these people were used to, there were also hints of the acceptance of diversity even beyond the Americas in religious myths and folklore in the region. For instance, there were myths uh, through some of the tribes in which a creator breathes life into human beings and scatters them throughout the world. And this is an interesting contrast to Christianity, which was practiced in Europe at the time, which was not as um, global in its outlook. Thus, I would say that some of these indigenous people were somewhat used to or anticipated foreign visitors, and when Europeans arrived, it might have been more shocking for the Europeans to encounter people who looked so different from them than for the Taino people themselves. So it isn't much of a stretch to think that they attempted to categorize the Europeans as divine human beings, since the Taino people were aware that other humans existed in other regions of the world, whereas Columbus and his crew would see them as less than human because they hadn't encountered people of different ethnicities in this part of the world. Now, before I end off, I want to talk briefly about Columbus's legacy. I think with the increasing awareness of Columbus um, and the origins of Columbus Day in the US, many people now know that Columbus Day was largely an acknowledgement of the Italian uh, American community in the US. In the US, he's seen as the embodiment of rugged individualism, while in the rest of the Americas, he's celebrated as the bringer of Christ. But what Columbus represents stretches way back beyond that even up to Columbus's time. Columbus portrayed himself as a sort of victorious protagonist over uncivilized, in quotes, uncivilized, natives and barbarians, and as a pioneering figure in Spanish imperialism. And this has continued um, in centuries beyond. During the 17th century, Spanish and English writers would suggest that the New World be named after Columbus, with names such as Colonia or Columbania being proposed instead of America. 
And the reason why Columbus remains so significant in the popular consciousness is because he is a symbol of empire, someone who can be molded and shaped to fit various narratives, and importantly, as the personification of the first colonialist who had to struggle through many obstacles before conquering uncharted territories. And so, I would say that the tearing down statues now, even beyond the crimes of Columbus, also hints at a bigger dissatisfaction with the very symbol of Western imperialism. Now that marks the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow the podcast if you're interested in listening for future updates. And see you soon.